Good morning, church. Good morning, Crosspoint. How are you? Good, 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 good. Well, about a month ago, our district superintendent called me and said, uh, Dr. Lenny Lucetti is coming up to uh, speak at Kingswood University. Would you like to have him uh, come and visit Crosspoint? Would it be okay if he came and preached? And the answer is yes. Uh, many of you would be familiar with, uh, with Lenny Lucetti as an evangelist at Beulah Camp at least a couple of times, maybe more than that. Twice? Twice so far. I'm sure you'll be back. And uh, one of the, truly one of the premier preacher communicators in our denomination, and it's a uh, just a treat for us to have him here to uh, minister to us this morning. We had a fantastic first service. We're looking forward to this one. So let's make him welcome Dr. Lucetti as he comes. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Pastor Tim. Hello, Crosspoint. How's everybody? Good, 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 good. Until I start talking. When the doctor uh, hits your uh, patellar tendon just below the kneecap, and your lower leg kicks, that's called a knee-jerk reflex. It's an unthinking, predictable, automatic response. Every single time the doctor hits you there, your leg will jerk. Knee-jerk reflex. You can't even help it. What is your knee-jerk response to certain situations in life? So like if I were to throw my Bible at you, I wouldn't do that, but if I were to throw my Bible at you, uh, some of you, your knee-jerk response would be to put up your hands, block it. Some of you who are more athletic might try to catch it. Uh, my kids know what my knee-jerk gesture is to people who cut me off on the highway. It's not the one you're thinking, it's this one. You know? uh, if someone were to slap you in the face, what would your knee-jerk response be? Some of you would cry. Some of you would slap back. How many of you would cry if someone slapped you in the face? That would be your knee-jerk response. Anybody? How many of you would slap back? Jesus did say if someone strikes you on the right cheek, slap the other. Right? <laughs> he did not. He did not. What is your knee-jerk response to extreme pain and disappointment and illness job loss, divorce, breakup? What's your knee-jerk response to disappointment? Maybe for some of us it's binge-watching or overeating or workaholism or alcoholism or counseling. This morning, I want us to explore Nehemiah's knee-jerk response to some of the most challenging situations that we humans can face. I know you've been in the New Testament on a series called Grow. We're going to go old school today and go into the Old Testament. I hope that's okay. Pastor Tim gave me permission, so take it up with him if you have a problem with it. Before we jump into Nehemiah, uh, I want to just, I'm going to pose three questions, actually. The first one is this. What is your knee-jerk response to obliteration? When you see people devastated, uh, demoralized, obliterated by some sort of pain, how do you respond? Uh, I want us to look at Nehemiah's response in chapter 1, but let me just give you some background. 
In 586 BC, you weren't there, uh, the Jews were obliterated by the Babylonians, a, a pagan empire. The Babylonians came into the holy city, Jerusalem, that had the holy temple, and obliterated the city, tore down the, wall, tore down the walls, destroyed the temple, and then carried off the remaining Jews who weren't killed into exile, into a pagan foreign land, the land of Babylon. That was a big deal for the Jews because in the Jewish mind, so much of their identity, their mission, their theology was wrapped up in the package of Jerusalem. And now that their city is gone and their temple is gone, they have to figure out how to worship God still. They were demoralized, obliterated, really. Their theology was obliterated. Their land was obliterated. Everything was obliterated. Well, in 444 BC, the time of Nehemiah, about 150 years later, uh, something happened. The Persian king uh, allowed the Jewish exiles to go back to Jerusalem, the holy city, and start to rebuild the city. That's the good news. He let them go back. The bad news is Jerusalem wasn't a city worth returning to. It was a mess. It was like one of these great cities that has a, an economic downturn, perhaps, and becomes like a small, run-down town. It's got like one Irving gas station and like a, a, a moldy-walled Tim Hortons. That's what Jerusalem is at that point. So the Jews, some of them, go back to the city and start to rebuild, but it's a mess. One of the Jews who goes back is Hanani, uh, Nehemiah's brother. He goes and he scopes out Jerusalem, see how, sees how the rebuilding is going, comes back to Susa, where Nehemiah, his brother, serves as cupbearer to the king of Persia in the palace. Nehemiah's got a beautiful, cushy, uh, comfortable job in the palace, cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah says to his brother Hanani, how's it going? What's going on in Jerusalem? How bad is it? And Hanani's like, bro, it's, it's really, really, really bad. Uh, let's pick up the story in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 to 4. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Upon hearing about the obliteration of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, uh, Nehemiah didn't post. He, he didn't procrastinate. He didn't, he didn't push uh, the obliteration of the Jewish people out of his mind, out of his way by, you know, Netflix watching and, you know, eating Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Here's, here's Nehemiah's response to the obliteration of the Jewish people. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's knee-jerk response to the obliteration of the Jewish people was prayer. An unthinking, predictable, habitual, automatic response. 
We are surrounded by obliteration. I mean, people's lives have been decimated. Um, culturally, there are COVID fears still as evidenced by your mask wearing. I mean, it's still upon us now, several years. And we're experiencing this, the financial strains that come with it, obliteration. And the depression that comes with it, there's political polarization, at least where I'm from. There's racial tension all over the place. It's bad out there. And it's a struggle in here because whatever happens in culture sort of trickles in through the pores of the church too. And so there's probably, I don't know this, but there's probably financial strain here and there's probably depression and devastation here in the church. People who have left during COVID have not come back to Crosspoint. And that's tough. Marriages are hanging by a thread. Uh, teenagers are suicidally depressed. Addicts are, it seems, hopelessly addicted. I mean, it's bad. Sorry for being a Debbie Downer, but it's just the way it is. I mean, it's bad out there. And it's tough in here. And if you're like me, when you see obliteration, some person or group devastated by life who's trying to rebuild the ruined walls of their life, if you're like me, and I hope you're not, you tend to push it away, you know, just ignore it because you start to feel a burden and it's uncomfortable, so you channel surf right past it. I do. And I think to myself, well, God doesn't want me to feel a burden. God doesn't want me to feel uncomfortable because of someone else's pain. Yes, yes, he does, actually. In terms of growth, I know it's a series you've been going through. In terms of growing up in the faith, the most mature Christians among us are the ones who, when they see the obliteration of some person or group, their knee-jerk response is prayer. They don't run from it. They run to it in prayer. They get on their knees. That's their knee-jerk. The more we... Uh, grow in Christ, the more intertwined we become with Jesus, the more naturally we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. In other words, we become more and more burdened by what burdens Jesus. And when Jesus sees people in some kind of pain with ruined walls all around them, he is burdened by that. It's like when you're married, after a while, you become burdened by what burdens your spouse, right? So I've been married 20 plus years to my wife, Amy, the grace of God in my life. And uh, as a result, she doesn't care much about football, but she knows that I love the Philadelphia Eagles. That's my team. I grew up in Philly, so I bleed green. And so when the Eagles lose, my wife is burdened by that, mostly because I get in a bad mood. But she's burdened. She shares the burden with me. And as a result of being married to her, uh, I now am burdened by a lack of home decor. So if I go into your house and it's cluttered and messy and, and the, the furniture is like haphazard, I'll notice it and I'll be grieved by it because that's what grieves my wife. You get it. What burdens you? What grieves you? Whose pain bothers you? When you see obliteration, pray. Because prayer induces compassion. Another question I have uh, for us this morning is, what is your knee-jerk response 
to opportunity. In uh, chapter 2, we see an opportunity for Nehemiah to do something about the obliteration. Because when you start praying for a group that's been devastated, you have a burden. You start to watch and wait and look for opportunities to partner with God in doing something about the obliteration, about the ruined walls of their lives. And so you're on the lookout. And if you're not praying and an opportunity arises, you'll tend to miss it or you'll see it and not have the courage to do anything about it. Because almost always when, when we're burdened by someone's obliteration and God brings up an opportunity for us to partner with him in rebuilding ruined walls, almost always that opportunity will seem way too big for us, but not too big for God. It will always be inconvenient. It will always be uncomfortable. It will always take blood, sweat, and tears, time, talent, treasure. And if we're not careful, we might miss it. Let's see what happens for Nehemiah. Chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Again, he was the cupbearer to the king, lived in the palace. I had not been sad in the king's presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah responds, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are uh, buried, uh, where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what is it you want? Nehemiah responds, then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. The month of Nisan is four months after Nehemiah got word from Hanani, his brother, about the ruined walls, the devastation of Jerusalem. Four months later, Nehemiah is still burdened by the obliteration of the Jewish people. It still bothers him. And he clearly is still praying about it. And because he's praying about it, when an opportunity comes for him to partner with God and doing something about the ruin and the rubble, he sees it. The king asks, you know, Uh, What do you want me to do for you? Or what do you want me to do? Now, this is a big risk for Nehemiah because if he says to the king, uh, you know, let me go and help with the, you know, construction of the wall, the king could get upset. I mean, the king could demote him or fire him or behead him, kick him out of the palace. That's why Nehemiah is afraid. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But then Nehemiah prayed. Prayer for Nehemiah was not a last resort, but a first response. Before he said a word, before he sized up the opportunity, before he analyzed it, schemed it, strategized it, he prayed. First, not last, first. And then he had the audacity to say to the king, let me out of the palace 
this cushy job of cupbearer in this comfortable place, the palace, and let me go back and join my people, the Jews, in rebuilding the ruined walls of their city. That was a risk. Now Nehemiah has to take this arduous journey back to Jerusalem through enemy territory. He could be killed. He's leaving the cushy comfort uh, convenience of the palace. And now he has to go and do construction. Blood, sweat, tears, calluses, blisters. It's a mess. And he's bound to fail. But he prayed. And prayer induces courage. At least it did for Nehemiah. What is your knee-jerk response to opportunities to partner with God and doing for others what he's done for you? What is your knee-jerk response to opportunities that are way too big for you, but not too big for God? In almost every situation we've experienced to partner with God, to help someone who has been obliterated or some group that's been obliterated, almost always it will seem Goliath-sized to us, too big. You go back to David and Goliath, and we feel like David all the time, at least I do, full of inadequacy, inferiority, insecurity. I just feel too small to uh, attack whatever God's given me to attack, whatever opportunity he's called me to. I always feel too small for it, like David, like the tail of the tape. Here is David, shepherd boy, five foot five, 150 pounds, with a record of three wins, zero losses. Tail of the tape for Goliath, going up against Goliath. Nine and a half feet tall, 350 pounds, with a win-loss record of 100 to zero. We almost always seem outmatched. What could we do to make a difference in Jerusalem among those who've been obliterated? How can little old I make a difference? But see, for David, it wasn't, in David's mind, it wasn't David against Goliath. David wasn't fighting Goliath. God was fighting Goliath on David's behalf. Goliath was way too big for David, and David knew that, but but Goliath is not too big for God. David knew that. And when Nehemiah prays, it's like he puts the ball in God's court. Or since I'm in Canada, he puts the puck on God's stick, right? The battle belongs to God. Opportunities are always too big for us, not too big for him. So, uh, when I was in uh, seminary years ago, uh, God uh, opened up the door for me to interview at a church in Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And I knew before going to this church to interview that uh, the church had five pastors in 10 years. So every two years, they cycled through a pastor. This church put the fun in this function, okay? The district superintendent said that uh, they would probably close their doors soon if something didn't change. I found out that uh, they interviewed another potential pastor months before I came. And halfway through the interview weekend, that pastor went AWOL. He, he got creeped out by the church and just left, never even showed up to preach on Sunday. Uh, this, the church was a mess. They were demoralized, devastated, ob- obliterated. During my interview weekend with this church, uh, like the board members sensed the need to keep telling me uh, why I wouldn't want to pastor them. Like they were not trying to win me over to to pastor them. They were telling me all of their dirty laundry just kind of poured it on the floor. Uh, But instead of being scared away, 
uh, I was burdened. You know, I, I felt the burden. I saw their obliteration, and, and I just began to pray for them. Now, I'm no hero of knee-jerk prayer, honestly. Uh, in fact, I confess that more often than not, prayer is not a first response for me. It's a last resort. After I've exhausted all my skill and savvy and charm, which I exhaust rather quickly. Um, but on this occasion, I, I prayed, felt the burden. Well, then the opportunity came. Uh, and this church invited me to be their pastor. At the same time, another church was in touch with me, a church that seemed more like a palace with a cushy job. More people, more prestige, more, more pay. Um, but it was pretty obvious to me because I made the, mis the mistake of praying where God wanted me. And I'm not sure what I was thinking or if I was thinking, but I said yes to go and pastor that church that put the fun in dysfunction. Probably because I was, I was praying more than I was thinking. Because if I were to sort of put two lists together and analyze it and strategize it and scheme it, I would never have gone to that church. It was just too big. It was too messy. Um, it was too obliterated. But I went, I prayed, I discovered that uh, prayer induces courage to partner with God in saying yes to an opportunity that's way too big for me, but not too big for him. Well, one more question. What is our knee-jerk response to opposition? Listen, when you... When you sense a burden from God and begin to pray about the obliteration of some person or group and you start looking and watching uh, for an opportunity to partner with God and doing something about the ruin and the rubble um, and you start to engage in that opportunity, I guarantee there will be opposition. And Nehemiah had lots of opposition. The opposition party for Nehemiah is introduced in chapter 2 verse 19. There's three guys, a three-headed monster that keeps opposing Nehemiah's work on the ruined walls of Jerusalem. Sanballat the Horonite, his name Sanballat means uh, sin has given birth. He's rightly named. He's a monster. He's the governor of Samaria, and he's threatened by Nehemiah. Sanballat, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Gershom the Arab. Sanballat, Tobiah, Gershom. I call them STGs, the opposition party to Nehemiah. What will Nehemiah do when faced with extreme opposition to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem? What do you think he'll do? He doesn't pout. He doesn't post. He doesn't push it away. He prays. Let's look at the, uh, the chapter and verses there. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, his buddy, jumped in, who was at his side. He said this, what they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down their wall of stones. Man, the mockery. Well, faced with that kind of opposition, what does Nehemiah do? Again, knee-jerk response. Verse 4. 
Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah continues, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, and the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the, gate, uh, the gaps were being closed, they were angry, jealous. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Here again, here's Nehemiah's knee jerk. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. But we prayed. If you step out in faith to tackle any Goliath-sized opportunity in front of you on behalf of those who've been obliterated, you will experience opposition. And sometimes when we experience opposition doing the work God's called us to do in the place God's called us to do it, we sometimes assume, well, maybe God's abandoned us. Uh, or maybe what we're doing is not from God. Uh-uh. In fact, if you have no opposition to the work of God through you, then maybe that's not of God. Expect opposition. And sometimes the opposition to the work of God comes from outside the church where people are cynical and uh, always misunderstanding and questioning and falsely accusing you, perhaps, of partnering with God. Oftentimes, though, the, the STGs are actually in the church. They watch you working on the walls and they gossip about you and try to tear you down while they're on the sidelines, <laughs> criticizing every move you make, the way you dress, the way you talk, the work you're doing, your inadequacy. But the STGs that do the most damage in terms of opposition to the work of God through us are not the ones outside the church. They're not the ones in the church. It's the STGs in my own head that do the most damage when I'm trying to step out in faith and partner with God and rebuilding the ruined walls of some person or group's life. The voices inside my head, the demons in my head that say, uh, Lenny, what do you have to offer? You're no good. You're not smart enough. You're not clever enough. You're not uh, skilled enough. You do not have what it takes. You're too young. You're too old. Even getting up here to preach this morning, there's that little... STG on my shoulder that says, you have absolutely no nothing to offer these people. Who do you think you are? You're a high school dropout alcoholic son of drug-addicted parents. What could you possibly offer? And I just have to pray through that and just tweak that STG off my shoulder. STGs abound. When I uh, uh, went to pastor that church in Pennsylvania, we were about two years in, and it wasn't going well. I mean, we had turned a few corners, and we had a sense of mission that was worth living and dying for, but uh, we started to make changes in the church to align with the mission we felt God was giving us to reach our community. And as you know, if you've been a part of a church any length of time, that change means conflict. <laughs> and there was lots of opposition. I still remember uh, one of the old-timers in the church. He was a good guy, a long-time member. But for some reason, he didn't like me or didn't like the changes, didn't like the way I dressed. I don't get it. But um, 
he used to sit way in the back of the church, and he, when, when I was preaching, he would just go like this. I don't think any of you are doing that right now. Maybe some of you in the back. But he would sit there like this. Or, or worse, when I got up to preach, a lot of times, he just left the sanctuary. Like he stayed for the music. I got up to preach, and I, would, I see everything when I preach, by the way. And I, I, see, I see you guys. Um, I see you guys at you know, lunchtime. But he would, he would get up and leave and go tinker in the kitchen. And I remember thinking, man, I didn't sign on for that. <laughs> that junk. I remember people in the church who were watching us try to rebuild uh, the ruined walls, uh, were gossiping about some of the leaders. I mean, it was just a mess, a lot of opposition. And I was in year two, and I was ready to quit. I had had it. Uh, I had tried everything I could think of in my own strength. By the end of two years, my strength had run its course. I just don't have what it takes. And so I was in my office uh, on a Tuesday morning at 7, trying to work on my sermon. And usually I work kind of fast and focused, but for a half hour, I sat there with sermon block. Nothing was coming into my head. Nothing. Except this thought. I really want to quit pastoring this church. And not only that, I think I actually want to quit being a pastor, too. And the thought of wanting to quit a church and a ministry I knew God called me to brought tears to my eyes. It shocked me, actually. And I got up from my desk, and I just kind of threw myself on the floor, face down, spread out, weeping, but praying. Unfortunately, it was a last resort, not a first response, which is why I endured two years of pain unnecessarily. But I prayed in that, on that day. While I was praying, and again, I was praying at times, God, release me from this church because it's driving me crazy. I was also praying, God, if you want me to stay, give me the grace to stay. Give me the courage. Give me the commitment. I get a knock at the door, uh, 7.30 in the morning, which is unusual to get a knock at the door that time of day. I ignored it. The knock persisted because my lights were on. They knew I was in there. So I wipe away the tears and the snot, put on my pastoral happy face, and answer the door with a smile. And two women in the church, uh, Linda and Renee, one who worked in the church office, one who worked in the preschool, said these words. They said, Pastor Lenny, we felt compelled by God to come and pray for you. Can we pray for you? And I lost it. Tears and snot came back. I was a mess, and I just, I just knelt in front of them, and they laid their hands on my shoulders, and they prayed the most beautiful prayers they could possibly pray for me. They basically prayed, God, give Lenny the grace uh, to keep on doing what you've called him to do in the place you've called him to do it. Give him a level of commitment he has not known. They didn't say that. That's what I heard. Uh, you see what happened. I mean, God, God saw my discouragement, and he, he sort of dispatched two praying angels to come and save me from quitting the work God had called me to do. And I almost quit, but I didn't, and I'm so glad I didn't. That church became the kind of church I always dreamed of leading. It took some time, but I'm glad I didn't quit. If God calls you to it, he will see you through it. When you experience opposition, and you will, pray because prayer induces commitment so that you can say with Jesus in the end, I have finished the work the Father has given me to do. What does God want you to rebuild for some person or group? Do you know it? 
Do you feel a burden to do something with the gifts God's given you, the resources God has given you, to make a difference in a person or group's life who's been obliterated, who has ruined and rubble, ruined walls and rubble lying all around them? And God has called you and me to do something about it. And you will experience opposition, no doubt. When you see obliteration, when you see an opportunity, when you see opposition, pray, pray, pray. Because prayer induces compassion and courage and commitment. Pray first, pray frequently, pray fiercely. There's so much at stake. The most vital life-giving churches I know are churches that don't have the best musicians or preachers, though they have good ones. They're, they're churches that pray first, fiercely, and frequently. And there's an outpouring of God's spirit all over them because they pray. That's their knee-jerk response. They pray. There's so much more at stake than we realize when it comes to prayer. If I didn't pray and those two praying angels didn't come and pray with me, I would have quit that church and I would have missed out on the beautiful outpouring of God's spirit that came after we got serious about prayer. God showed up and that demoralized church became the fastest growing church in the district. We saw hundreds of people cross the line of faith and get baptized. People in the community who didn't even know Jesus. Yeah, you can clap for God, clap for God, because that is a God thing. Yeah, don't for a minute think that this happened because of me. It happened in spite of me. It happened not because I showed up, because God showed up. God didn't take me to the church to use me to turn that church around. He took me to that church to use that church to turn me around, actually. But God showed up. People who aren't even Christians were out in the community doing our evangelism for us. Go to that church. They care about people. Because we got serious about tagging God into the ring so that the battle would belong to him, not us. Nehemiah could have quit, probably would have. Back in 444 BC, there's no way he would have stayed the course in rebuilding that wall with STGs all around him had he not been a man of knee-jerk prayer. He prayed, and because of it, he finished the construction on the wall so that the Jewish people were reestablished in the city of Jerusalem so that through the Jews would come Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the ultimate rebuilder of the ruined walls of our lives. Let's pray. I'm going to shut up for a minute and invite God to speak directly to us. Would you wrestle in prayer uh, with God over that question? Um, God, what burden do you want to give me because of someone else's obliteration? I'm not going to hog and it away. I'm not going to Netflix it away. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to stay in. Lord, would you bring to our minds and hearts right now someone else's pain. Lord, maybe you want us to rebuild a relationship, rebuild a ministry, start a mission to some under-resourced group? Would you 
in the next hours or days. Show us an opportunity to partner with you in rebuilding the ruined walls of some person or group's life. And then, God, when we step up and say yes to you and opposition comes from outside of us or within us, um, we will pray. And may pray, prayer to you induce commitment to finish the work you've given us to do. Lord, bless Cross Point Church. God, may this church be known for a lot of good things, but especially, especially a knee-jerk reflex of prayer that tags you into the ring and puts the battle in your hands. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.